Today on the show, I am sitting down with Deborah Turkheimer, a former prosecutor, legal expert, and leading authority on sexual violence to examine why we are primed to disbelieve allegations of sexual abuse and how we can transform a culture and a legal system structured to dismiss accusers. Look, it's a hard conversation to dig into abuse and abusers and the people that they hurt, but it's an important conversation to understand why culturally we tend not to believe the people who are getting hurt the most. In this conversation, we look at it from a bunch of different angles, and Deborah very graciously allows me to ask a lot of really ignorant questions so that I can better arm myself with information that we should all have. I hope that you will listen in and learn, as I did, from Professor Turkheimer as we discuss a really important issue. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast, I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Deborah, I'd love to start with the history of your career, because I think that really plays a lot into the conversation today and would love to give people a background if they're not already familiar with your work. Absolutely. So I started my law practice as a prosecutor. I worked in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office on the kinds of cases that I specialized in would probably now be thought of as special victims cases. We didn't really call them that back then, but I handled domestic violence, um, child abuse, um, and along with those cases were obviously sexual violence cases too. And so I, you know, I've really been thinking about these particular crimes on this particular kind of violence uh, for a long time. I, I started in the DA's office like back in 1997 or something. So it was a long time ago. And, you know, working with, honestly, working with the mostly women and children who I, you know, who were my my victims, my survivors, my witnesses, was hugely influential. And it has continued to drive the work I do, continues to inform what I write about, what I speak about, what I think about really every day. I'm I'm fascinated by how you find yourself in that role to begin with, uh, because I, I think the work that you do, that so many people do in these spaces is so crucial because you are giving voice to people who need it. You're being a, an ally and a champion for people who need it, but that cannot be an easy thing to carry. So how do you find yourself even doing that work? I think it does take a certain kind of a person to want to be both a prosecutor and to work these particular cases because there is a heavy component of what 
some might think of as a social work, right? You certainly have to be someone who connects with people and you certainly have to be willing to, as you say, Rachel, to take on a, a heavy load because these stories are excruciatingly painful and what people have endured is unimaginably difficult. And yet I have to say, I was also really energized and inspired by the resilience of, of people who picked up the pieces and went forward with their lives under conditions that, you know, many of us would, would find unbearable. Um, and yet somehow the, the human spirit kind of finds a way. And so I, I found the work to be challenging and also hugely um, energizing and almost exhilarating. And at the end of the day, I was able to make a difference, I thought, in the lives of of many, if not most, of these people. And that that was what made it worthwhile to come to work and to 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 do this difficult job. I could help and I could help seek justice. Now, in that work over over all of these years, at what point did you start to sort of see a through line or connect the pieces? I, I'm thinking of the new book and this conversation that you're having and that we're going to have today, was that something that you started to kind of wonder about a long time ago? Is that something that you've recently seen or sort of where did the journey to the work that you are focusing on today begin? I have a general answer and a specific answer. So the (laughs) the general answer is that I think I was sort of constantly preoccupied with the ways in which the system, so to speak, the criminal justice system was not responding especially well to these populations, to the populations that, you know, I cared most deeply about, those who are vulnerable and marginalized. And again, you know, mostly women, mostly children, many people of color. And those were the, those were people I worked with day to day. And I just didn't see that it was easy for those individuals to find justice. There were so many barriers in their way. And so I became a law professor and this was around 2002 when I started my my career as a a law professor. And I knew I wanted to write about the system and think about ways that the system could do better by these particular victims. And so that's kind of the broad answer. So I, you know, kind of carried with me the sense that the system needed to do better by these victims. And then specifically on credibility, which is the subject of of my new book, I was always struck by the additional barriers in the way of particular victims and especially women coming forward with domestic violence or sexual violence allegations or children coming forward with those allegations. And it was always going to be so much more difficult for me as the prosecutor to think about bringing that case to a jury and convincing 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt with this as my main witness. And so on some level, I think I you know, have been kind of mulling over and stewing about credibility ever since I started doing this work. So just to understand, having not been inside of the legal system in the way that you have, is there, and please forgive me if this is a dumb question because I don't know, but when you're, you're, you're considering which cases to prosecute based on what you think actually you can get traction on. So, so it doesn't, 
and I don't mean this to sound terrible, but are there instances where like, no, this actually happened and we know, but there's a 0% chance that, or a very small percentage of chance that we could actually get what we want out of this so we can't take it on? I think it's a great question and it doesn't actually have an easy answer. So prosecutors have to think about the the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard that applies in criminal court in every kind of case. And it's a very high standard and rightly so. Criminal defendants have a, a lot on the line. Um, liberty is often at stake. And so we set this up so that it's fairly difficult to secure a conviction. And so prosecutors are always thinking about the kind of evidence that would persuade a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are, you know, there are sadly going to be cases where prosecutors say believe the victim, but don't feel like there's enough evidence to go forward. And especially when you're talking about these kinds of of crimes, I think, you know, prosecutors at least owe a, a duty of honesty to their victims to say, I know in many cases, I'm willing to go forward. I'm willing to put you on the stand if you're wanting to testify. But I also want you to understand that I don't know what a jury is going to do with this case because they're bringing all sorts of biases to the to the fore and to the deliberation process. And it's going to be really, really hard. And in many of those cases, um, survivors will, will opt not to, to testify and to move the case forward. I want to be clear that I think prosecutors often use this also as a, a way not to move forward with cases they ought to be moving forward with. And in the book, I talk a lot about the ways in which police officers and prosecutors just sort of fall short of doing their job and gathering the kind of evidence that would actually persuade a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So I don't want to let prosecutors off the hook too easily here. And I you know, don't want to let myself off the hook too easily here. But I do think that there are going to be those cases where it's it's going to be so tough to prove and and victims are often the ones who suffer for it. I mean, the conversation too is this idea that victims are often not believed, like that we tend to, as a society, choose usually the man, uh, but we choose uh, the person who's actually done something terrible over the person who's been hurt, right? So what are some of the biases that go into that? And I know it's a widespread, you know, far-reaching thing, but for people who might not be familiar or who have never considered this before, why are we not listening to victims of this kind of violence? Yeah, and this is exactly the question that kind of led me to write the book. And so I've kind of harnessed all of my experiences as a prosecutor and my conversations with my survivors, my witnesses over the years. And then in the course of researching the book, asked similar questions. Like, what did you encounter when you came forward? What kinds of biases um, stood in the way of you getting the justice that you deserve, you getting the healing that you deserve? And out of all of that comes this idea that the book is really about, which is the, the credibility complex, that we have these forces that shape us in all sorts of ways and that lead us to discount the credibility of accusers who are mostly women and inflate the credibility of people accused, mostly men. And that's um, kind of at the heart of the problem. So what are the biases that these uh, forces kind of leave us with? The biases, the misconceptions. They're about who are the victims? What do victims of abuse um, look like and how do they behave? 
who are the abusers? What, what do the men look like? How do they behave? And what, what are the effects of, of trauma? And so all in all of these ways, and I can go into the you know, more specifics, but we have these um, flawed assumptions about you know, how a victim is supposed to act and what an abuser is supposed to look like. We expect that he's a monster. And if he doesn't look like a monster, then he couldn't possibly have done it. And, and again, trauma and what that does to someone's ability to, for instance, tell a narrative in a linear way and one that's coherent and that has all of the details. And so I, I want to believe that many people want to do better when they judge credibility. And this isn't a book that is designed to point fingers and say that people are trying to um, be unfair to women who come forward or children who come forward, but rather that we're just shaped by culture and we're shaped by law and we don't even realize it. Right. It's like the psychology for us as human beings of what we've been taught to believe versus what we haven't. And I'm going to assume that in a lot of these cases, the the uh, you said you we call them the accuser doesn't have as much power, doesn't have as much resources, doesn't maybe doesn't have the ability to be eloquent and speak well. And and especially under the stress of something that's this intense. And so it, the idea, like, I, I remember talking to, um, uh, what are the, what do they call them? Like, um, person who helps an expert sort of witness in a court case, how to, how to give testimony or whatever. And she was saying, Oh, it, it, what you say doesn't matter nearly as much as how you say it, because how you say it is perceived through emotion by a jury and they're not ne- not even necessarily conscious of what it was that you said because they're just going i don't like her i don't trust what yeah. she's you know like it that it the facts sort of take a back seat to whether or not they are sort of connecting with the person who's on the stand which is wild it is it is and it's like this perverse goldilocks problem which is that if an accuser presents as too emotional i'm you know going to even use the word hysterical then she's discredited, right? Then people decide that, you know, she's not telling the truth because she's just, she's off. And at the same time, if she's not emotional enough, if she seems too calm, then she's discredited because it seems like this couldn't possibly have happened because she's not upset enough. And so she's got to be just right in the middle in order to be perceived as credible. And and again, that's because we don't understand that there are so many ways that trauma can affect us and so many ways for an accuser to, to tell her story. And this is part of, I think, the greater awareness and the greater education that can help people to realize, hmm, maybe I shouldn't disbelieve her simply because she's not crying hysterically or because she is. Well, and then I think the the flip side of it is that you have a a defense, right? You have the the defense team who know how to make someone emotional, how to get someone upset, like how to discredit you through the way that you're presenting in front of that jury. It's this is wild. And and then I think like even taking a step back, uh, having a better understanding from our conversation at the beginning that some cases you sort of hesitate to even take on the emotional cost to the accuser, the emotional cost of, hey, we're going to go into this and this could be years, right? This could take a very, and you might have to tell the story over and over and oh my gosh. 
So how many, like, do you have an idea or sort of a percentage of people who just say nothing or do nothing because they don't believe that the system will be helpful and that they think it's a lost cause? We know that the vast majority of victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment never, ever come forward to report formally. The vast majority. I just got chills. I know, I know. And it's so understandable, right? Because it... It is so hard. Even when it goes well, it is so hard. And it, I hate to say this, but it rarely goes well. And if there's one thing that I would hope your your listeners might take away from this conversation, it's this. Over and over again, I hear from survivors, the aftermath of abuse, whether it's harassment or sexual assault, was as bad as or even worse than the abuse itself as bad as, or even worse. And this is, this is the system. This is all of us. This is not the abuser. This is not the rapist. This is not the harasser. This is what we're doing to survivors after the fact. Wow. Is there, what are the things and are there things that we, you know, who are listening to this, who are not prosecutors, who are not police officers, who are not, what are the things that we can do or ask or demand it, to to affect this in some way, to not just sort of like listen to it and be like, man, that sucks. But these are predominantly like, these are other women. These are our sisters. These are children. What are we doing to like make this better? One thing to realize is that most survivors will report first to someone who is in their trusted inner circle. And so that might be a roommate or a coworker or a parent. And so I want people who read the book and people who are listening to this conversation to think of themselves as being a type of first responder mm-hmm. and, and how we react to these disclosures can really dictate the path forward for the survivor. It can be just a devastating blow and a betrayal of trust if we are dismissive and we are unfair and we are unjust in how we respond. But on the flip side, if we are able to hear these disclosures and respond fairly and accurately and and not bring into the mix our biases, our misconceptions, we educate ourselves, we become aware, Mm -hmm. then we can help this person on the path toward justice and toward healing. And maybe that means a police report, a report to the campus you know, Title IX disciplinary authorities or to HR, and maybe it doesn't, but whatever it looks like for that person, having the person who they trusted enough to report to in the first instance can make all the difference in the world. And so, you know, this is sort of an empowering thought too, right? It's not, we're not destined to just kind of make the same mistakes over and over again. We actually have control over whether our culture transforms. It happens individual by individual. Yeah, I love that too. I love this reminder of us sort of being on the lookout or champions for other people, specifically other women. It reminded me, so I live in Austin, Texas, and here in Austin, there's something called ACL, which is a big music festival. And I was at ACL last weekend. I took my 14-year-old and his best friend, and I would have rather been in pajamas, but I did it, (laughs) did the whole thing. And we were in uh, like a sort of back area. There was like a bar area. And I looked up and there was a a woman in her 20s who had had way too much to drink and was sort of doing that thing kind of like if people can't see me, I'm sort of swaying a little bit. 
and I'm just mom mode, right? Or like big sister mode. I go over to her, I'm like, hey, how are you? Because she was by herself, just kind of like whatever. And I'm like, okay, you sit here. I'm going to get you some water. I'm just going to, let's, let's get hydration. Let's get something in you. So I go to grab a water. I come back. And when I come back, she's with a man. So he's holding her upright and they're making their way out of this lounge area. And I didn't give a fuck. Like, I'm, I'm just going to go. I, I walked up. I was like, who are you? What's her name? Where does she work? Where does she live? I like, uh, cause I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm taking her to the Uber. I'm like, who are you? He's like, I'm her boyfriend. I was like, prove it. Tell me all the, cause she was like, wow. like she was wow. whatever. And he sort of chuckled. And then I was like, nope, answer the question. And he started answering them, whatever. And I, I grilled this guy for a bit and other people are watching me. Yeah. Too. Wow. And he answered all the questions. And then he was like, dude, this is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Like he, yes. okay, he was like, thank you for checking. Yes. He's like, no, that, you know, and I was like, yeah, okay. I'm like, you, you can leave now, but I'm just, I'm just, you know, it's, there's that psychology of, I forget what this is called. There's something like when there's a lot of, when there's like one person around, we're more likely to help. But when there's lots of people around, we assume someone else has it. And it's sort of this idea of like, let's not assume anybody has this. Right. Let's assume that if you, you're at, see another human being that they are inside of your circle right. and that as a human, you're going to show up for them. Yeah. I love that story. And it really does. It really does kind of help shift the frame. We're not just kind of helpless um, onlookers and, you know, kind of passively watching all of this all of this abuse go on in the world, but rather we have a hand in stopping right. it, maybe preventing it and responding to it in a, in a fair and just way as we would want someone to respond to us if we were in the position. And so right. I love this idea that we all have a responsibility here. What are some of the things that we should be aware of? I know, I know we're sort of learning more information about this, but I just, knowing that we have this audience that maybe hasn't heard this conversation before, it's sort of like one of those things that we should be aware of that the injustice is greater than we realize that it is. And that, um, so the thing that pops into my head right now is uh, one of my best friends just had a baby uh, about six weeks ago and she is a black woman and during her pregnancy and her delivery and all of these things, there was so much fear that we, her friend circle had because the mortality rates for black women during pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum are way worse than they are for white women. They don't get the same care. They don't, I mean, it was a trying to find a doctor that she felt comfortable with as a whole thing. And that's not something that I had frameworked before, before her pregnancy, because it was just not something that I was aware of. So what are these things that we maybe don't hold space for the injustice that's yeah. actually happening on a large yeah. scale, but also when it comes to women of color yeah. or children or LGBTQ that maybe we're not yeah. aware of? It's such an important question. I, I try in the book to center the stories of women who, who we don't know. They're not famous for the most part. And the, they're women of color because just to back up for a second, if we look at, at credibility and we think about credibility and what it really is, I wanna, I wanna say that it's, just, it's a form of power. Credibility is a form of power and it's distributed along axes of power. So if we look at our society and we see structural inequalities like race, like gender, uh, like socioeconomic status, right? We see these inequalities. 
you're going to find that credibility corresponds exactly to those. And the more oppressed and the more vulnerable and marginalized a person is, the more likely it is that that individual is going to have a very steep credibility discount. That's someone who's not going to be given the authority to speak about her life in the same way that a man of status, of power, of privilege in our society is granted the authority to speak about his. And so even though my book really focuses in on sexual abuse allegations, and it's a book about that, this idea of credibility discounting, I think, reaches far and wide. Because what you start to realize is that (laughs) in the medical setting, women of color aren't believed when they come in and speak of their symptoms. In the workplace, women's contributions are devalued. Um, In intimate relationships, women are blamed for actions of other people. And, And it goes on and on and on. And so if you think really expansively about credibility and you think of it as a form of power, you start to see injustice all over the place. And I know that sounds really grim and it's infuriating and maddening and all of that is true, but it also opens up the space, I think, for making some change and for thinking very carefully about how we are going to make our credibility judgments. And I will also say, you know, when we experience credibility discounting, which I think many people listening will sort of recognize, oh yeah, that happened to me. And and, oh, I now have a name for it. Like that's what it was. That can also be really helpful, right? It can be validating. You realize that it's not you. It's, it's this society, it's this sort of structure that is in place really to give certain kinds of people authority to speak and to have that recognized. And then other people are not given that same authority. And so what are we going to do about it? We need to change it. Is there, you said at the beginning, something about prosecutors and police officers that there is a greater need for them to show up for accusers, what are some of the things that happen that, you know, is it not documenting correctly? So then the evidence isn't as strong. It's, it's yeah. those sorts of things. Exactly. It's, um, it's, it's cutting investigation short too early. It's deciding from the get-go that it's, this is a, I'm putting this in air quotes. Um, I, he said, she said contest, right. And whenever someone says that it really, you're going to find that they just are throwing up their, their hands and saying, I can't do anything about this, right? It's a tie. And if it's a tie, then the the he, in this case, the accused really wins because nothing changes. (laughs) And so what you see at the investigative stage is that he said, she said, you know, contests are being just, just sort of dismissed. And the kind of work that would be needed to turn a he said, she said, into a, a case that can go forward and can make its way through the system, perhaps to even to a jury, well, that's just not happening. And you see that in the shelved rape kits that sit all around the country as tangible evidence that law enforcement is just not doing its job. Not doing anything with those kits. They're just that's sitting right. There. And the kits are yeah. sitting there because the cases went nowhere. They shelved the kits because the cases have already been thrown out, dismissed. And um, 
that I think is just, you know, a way to, to look at all of this and say, huh, we're not telling officers that you've got to believe every accuser and make an arrest in every case that comes your way, but just do the work. Just, right. just, just believe enough to actually do your job and gather the evidence. And I want to be clear, some officers are fabulous and, you know, some of police course, detectives are course. fabulous, right? So, and yet there is a systemic problem. Yeah. I read this article yesterday in the paper that there was a case recently and I'm going to forget the exact details, but he was a serial killer. He had used dating apps to find women, have sex with them and then strangle them. And he just kept getting away with it. And it ended up that one of the victim's friends basically solved the case. Like, got into her friend's DMs, found this guy, created a fake account, reached out to him, got, and then handed it to wow. the police yeah. in her town and said, I found him. He's supposed to meet me here at this time. And this man got convicted and had killed multiple women, but nothing happened until a friend got tired of waiting for the police to do it and did it herself, which is wild, wild. Serial killer. So, like, so crazy. sad to think about all of the suffering along the way that could be prevented right. if, you know, right. because, because many of these cases do have that kind of corroboration. Many of these cases do have electronic evidence and law enforcement officers have the power to get search warrants and issue subpoenas. And there are ways to gather evidence and build a case, but you've got to have the wherewithal and the willingness to pursue the case and to think that it matters enough to do it, right? It's not just about believing that it happened, but also believing that it's important enough to hold someone to account. And that's part of yeah. what credibility involves too. Yeah. Do you feel like things are getting better? Do you feel like we're sort of at the start of this conversation and you feel hopeful about where we are in a decade or where do you feel like we are in the cycle of change here? I think something, you know, huge happened in the fall of 2017, starting with kind of the reporting um, of Harvey Weinstein's predations and the, you know, kind of explosive New Yorker and New York Times um, reports on this that led to the hashtag Me Too going viral. Right. The right. movement had been started in 2006 by Tarana Burke, who whose work continues to center the sexual violation of Black women and girls. And so I think it's really important to recognize that the movement didn't begin in 2017, but it certainly did open up a whole new level of conversation mm -hmm. in this country and in the world. And I think more stories um, sort of coming forth and continuing to come forth do change, do change the world. Absolutely. So that gives well, me hope. I, yeah. I mean, I think what's so, so wild about that is I was thinking about me too, as we were talking, I, my first job was at Miramax. So I worked not directly for Harvey, but was around him all the time. And I, nobody, not one person who worked for him was surprised, would have been surprised by that information. Nobody. He, I mean, literally he was uh, just everybody across the board would have said, this is one of the most evil people that exists in the world. He was awful. But what's crazy is that I just thought, we all just yeah. thought that's okay. Yeah. It was my first job. I was 18 years old. I was interning there while I was going to school. And I just thought, you know, for someone to cuss you out or say they're, I won't even repeat the things that were said, 
that that was normal in the entertainment industry. And I wanted to work in the inter- entertainment industry. So that was part of it. And after Me Too came out, we started to have more conversations. Every woman I know had that moment where you sort of look back on experiences you had and go, oh, yeah, that actually wasn't OK. That was really inappropriate. Or this thing that happened was sexual harassment. Yeah. Or this person said this thing about my boobs. And I just like laughed it off because I wanted to keep my job. Like there were so many things that when someone reframed that for us, that it was the first time that we realized that it wasn't normal. Yeah. And so I hope that this conversation that we're having and the work that you're doing and so many other advocates are doing is is changing the way that we and I and yes, man, freaking we need male allies in this. But as women, we are powerful. We are a powerful community of sisters. And what does it look like for us to just keep leaning into the idea that it's not okay? Yes. That it's not okay for us or our daughters or our sisters. And it definitely isn't okay for it to happen to anybody else. So I think if nothing else, just making people aware that this is going on is huge. Amen. I, you know, I I think about the idea of an open secret, which is what you're describing, right? The idea that it's tolerated and that people know who's acting up and who's doing what. And yet the sense is that that's business as usual. And because again, power, who had power in that workplace? What could you as an 18 year old, just starting out in your career, what could you have done? Nothing, right? Nothing. <laughs> Quit. Yeah. I, I, you know, I wanted to pay rent. So yeah, yeah nothing. And so, you know, so this conversation, as you say, it evolves and we are better off than we were five years ago because we as a society, I think have a better sense of how commonplace this is. I mean, when, when men, our male allies start to ask the women in their lives, have you ever been, have you ever been harassed? Have you ever been assaulted? Have you ever experienced any kind of gendered abuse? I, 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 I would bet that they will hear a yes from every single woman they ask, as long as that man is trusted enough, right, to hear the story. And so, right. I mean, that's that's a part of it. And we need to respond to these stories and we need to respond yeah. in, in ways that are fair and just and that help the survivor who's come forward because the burden shouldn't be entirely on women to come forward with their accounts and then to have nothing done with them or to be told it was your fault or to be told we don't really know if we believe you right it's it's there's got to be some burden placed on all of us to do better when we hear these stories you know it's interesting too the idea of how much strength it takes for an accuser to even have the courage to say anything at all and us just recognizing that piece I went to a spa, like a spa in the desert, uh, a, a little while back. And I was in um, a yoga class where at the end of the yoga class, uh, we sat around in a circle. There were maybe six or seven of us in the room and we were just chatting. And uh, this uh, one woman who was sitting across from me, energetically could just tell something was wrong, but she was having a really hard time. And so after class, I walked out with her and I just, you know, total stranger. I'm just like, hey, how are you? you know, is everything okay? And she just sort of like, it was like, you know, you're just waiting for this moment. And she was telling me, she was probably in her late forties, maybe early fifties. And she was saying when she was in college, she was kidnapped and raped. And he, the, he went to jail and for the first time he was coming up for parole. Mm. And she was at this spa because she was trying to have a moment of peace Mm. before she went home and had to testify 
about this, right? And she's just beside herself. She's so freaked out. She's so scared. And she also feels like, uh, she told me, like, total stranger. She just, like, told me all this stuff. Because she was, he attacked her when he was on parole. So he had gotten out, did this to her. Now, all these years later, she is supposed to testify at his parole hearing. And she is feeling this massive weight of responsibility. So she's saying, it's been 20 years. Maybe he has changed. Like, and, or maybe, and I was like, oh, I don't even, I'm not saying this. My face is like poker face. But I'm thinking, how on earth do I even try and hold space for this woman right now? Mm. And I was like, the only thing that I can think to tell you is that none, nothing else in this is your responsibility except for what you need out of this moment. You are not responsible for whether or not he stays in jail or gets out. You are not responsible for what he did before or what he does next. The only thing that you can do in this moment is be authentic and give your spirit what it needs right now in this day. But I had never had a conversation like that in my life. And it was the first time that I was aware of, oh, you're not out. Doesn't If it goes to trial, if they go to prison, if it, it, it's, not done. it's not done. This woman is still, to some extent, being tortured by this experience that she had in college, which is just, and in that case, it was, that trial went the way that you would hope that it would, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Ugh, it's so heavy. It's so heavy. What a what a weight to bear. And it does sound to me like you gave her the best possible advice. But for many survivors, and I've heard this often in my conversations, there is a such a sense of wanting to protect other would-be victims. And yeah. and that I, I'm thinking about one woman who's in the book, her name is Abby Honnold, and her rapist also did go to to prison and it was not an easy road. And along the way she was, she was blamed and she was disbelieved, but ultimately because there was another victim, he did go to prison. And, you know, what she said was, I, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen when, when he gets out. And, you know, I have sort of mixed feelings about, you know, whether it's enough time, but what I do know is that for now, for right now, he's not hurting anyone else. And that gives me peace. And she said, she's a very self-aware woman. And she said, I, I, sh- I know I shouldn't have to carry that load myself. I shouldn't have to carry the load of thinking about other women who might be hurt by him, but I do, and I will. And I think she's not alone. I think you said, yeah. we, 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 we are sisters. We, you know, Women do look out for one another. Not always, not often enough, but many of us do. And I think that this sense that like, if we do right, we could keep someone from hurting another individual. And if we don't, then we can't. It's just a lot, a lot of pressure. Right. right. I think if nothing else, there is something, I'm very much a hippie. So I'm going to say something very hippie right now. But I do think that even energetically, us being aware that this is happening in the world around us and sort of holding space for what that is and, and feeling a connection with other women of like, that you will think of her the way you would think of your daughter or your sister or your friend. And it's not, it would not be okay for it to be anyone in your life. So what does it look like to just be aware? I think that is the first step because oftentimes when we talk about big things like this, 
women will feel very overwhelmed. They're like, I don't know how to do, I can't fix this. So I won't do anything at all. And I think just starting with an awareness, because if we start with an awareness, you actually are wiring something inside of your brain to notice, to pay attention. When you see an article in the paper, when you see something happening in your town, when you hear a story, when someone tells you their truth, that you at least now have an awareness of what it looks like to be an ally in this situation. So Deborah, I'm super grateful that you are doing this work because we need it. Not only do we need those defenders, but we also need someone to tell the rest of us, hey, this is going on and we all need to hold space for it. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And you know, thank you for amplifying this conversation and reaching so many listeners because I could not agree with you more that this really comes down to rewiring ourselves. We can do it. We can do better. And I think we will see in the course of our lifetimes, huge shifts and huge advances in this area. And and we have control over that, each one of us. And so it really means so much to be having this conversation with you today. For people who are listening and want to grab the book, want to listen in, want to learn more and unpack more of this conversation, where can they find you? Where can they find the work? Give us all the details. Um, The book is Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And it is now on sale. You can get it online anywhere. Your indie bookstore is carrying it. Um, If you like to shop online, I think the sites will have it. And I have a website. It's DebraTurkheimer.com. I should probably spell that because my name is difficult. Uh, It's (laughs) Debra, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-T-U-E-R-K-H-E-I-M-E-R. DebraTurkheimer.com. And that has information about the book and information about how to contact me. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for your wisdom and for the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, I loved our conversation. Thank you, Rachel. Pleasure meeting you. Yeah, you too. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is a 3% chance production.